0: You're listening to the Gospel of Mark, a series preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Mark chapter 3 will be at verse 20 in just a moment. Have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever felt as though someone that you knew, or maybe even someone that you didn't know, that you met, and they just didn't get you. They didn't understand what you were all about, and maybe they thought something different about you than what's actually true. Have you ever been falsely accused? Ever Anybody ever looked at you and, or, or saw something happen and, and just immediately blamed you? I, I know that when it comes to the boys, we almost always know exactly who did the thing that was wrong. And when it's a fight, you always know who did what, right? You know this is the person most likely to instigate, this is the person that was poking and poking and poking, and this is the person that actually decided he was going to swing, right? And it's always the same guys. And so, sometimes we, we get falsely accused, we are misunderstood, and we know how awful that is, right? We know how terrible it is. Well, tonight we're going to see an example of how Christ is terribly misunderstood and falsely accused. And we're going to see how the Lord, our Savior, dealt with the situation like this. And I think that as we do, we'll learn many great lessons. And so let's look at Mark chapter 3 together. Mark has just jumped from the five stories of Jesus dealing with the Pharisees and their false religion, dealing with their their man-made religion that they've, they've tried to veil in this we're using the Bible, but they've added so much to it that it's no longer anything like what God had originally written. And so Jesus is exposing this and he does all these things and they're getting more and more upset with him to the point that the Pharisees and the Herodians band together with a desire to kill Christ. And it's at that point that Jesus says, okay, now it's time to call the 12 apostles. And so last week or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus calling the apostles. We saw how Jesus chose this really not-so-dreamy kind of group of boring, regular guys to be his dream team. To be the team that he would send out, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to flip the world upside down for the cause of Christ. And they did that. And how encouraging is it to know that Jesus chose, on purpose, guys like that to, to perform his will in this world. Encouraging for us. Now, in verse 20, we are going to see once again that there's a group of religious people that want to attack Jesus. But it doesn't begin there. In verse 20, it actually begins with his own family. Verse 20 together. It says, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. That's a really easy portion to read and skip over and get kind of to the juicy stuff that's coming. But here, this is a circumstance that Mark has made familiar to us many times, and it's followed up by a really strange statement. So the familiar circumstance is that there's a group of people, a multitude of people, that are following Jesus everywhere he goes. Right? He can't he can't go into a house with his, without his multitude. That's kind of weird, isn't it? It seems strange to us. If I go in my house and shut the door, hopefully nobody's following me in if I don't want them to. But everywhere Jesus goes, a multitude is following him. And we see in Mark chapter, and Mark wants to, he wants us to get this. For some reason this is really important to him. In verse chapter 1, verse 28, it says, His fame spread abroad throughout the whole region, round about Galilee. Verse 33, All the city gathers together at the door. Verse 37, all men seek thee, verse forty-five. Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places. And they came to him from every quarter. So you get the picture, right? First, he can't go in the house, and then then they, they can't even go into the city because there's so many people that are just hounding him that are that are all over, that are not even allowing him to do ordinary tasks. It continues in Mark chapter two, verse two. Many are gathered together so much that somebody can't even get into the house. Right, the paralyzed man has to get dropped in through the roof. Chapter two, verse thirteen. All the multitude again goes to the sea to see him. Right, it's like this panic that they have. They've lost Jesus. Where is Jesus? Oh, I think he's by the sea. Okay, everybody, go to the sea and find Jesus again. Mark chapter three, verse seven. Here we find a great multitude from Galilee following him. But it's not only Galilee now. It's Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the Jordan. Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude. It's so huge. People are coming from the north, south, east, west, and now they're traveling long distances that it's getting out of hand. And it's because of all of these people going to see Jesus that it's attracting so much tension from the religious institutions. Right? The Pharisees, they're coming from Jerusalem to figure out what's going on. Now we have a band of scribes that will show up. They want to know what's going on. Well, there's another group of people that find out what's happening. That's Jesus' family. Now, in the King James, it says his friends heard of it. The word "their friends, simply means those nearest to him. And so friends would, would be kind of a, a way that we might look at that, but that's a Greek idiom that often or, or always meant his kin. It wasn't just his family, because his friends, because his friends were the disciples, right? And the disciples, they were part of this whole thing. They were following him around. They knew what was going on. And so here, it's actually his family that hears about all that's happening, and they go out to lay hold on him. And laying hold on him is not simply, hey, Jesus, come here, we got to talk to you. That word is arrest. It's not like they're arresting him and taking him to prison, but they're forcibly taking him. They're seeing this serious problem, and so they're taking him, for they said, he is beside himself. He's crazy. He's lost his mind. Why do you think they were there? Why do you think they traveled probably from Nazareth to get to Capernaum so that they could go into the house because they heard that Jesus isn't even able to eat? There's so many people around. They probably came because they love him. That's my guess. I would guess that they're there because they're concerned with Christ, they're concerned with Jesus, their brother, right? Their cousin, maybe. But. They don't believe in him. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They don't believe he's the Lord. They don't believe any of what he's saying. And so they show up because they think that their brother who they love is a religious fanatic. That he's a lunatic. He's a cult leader. He's a madman. And they're there to physically take him. And and they might think well of him. They think like he's a nice guy. They know Jesus, right? He's just a little off his rocker and he needs our help needs to be fixed up a little bit. And so this is the first group that meets Jesus. The next group that will meet Jesus is not so kind in their motivation. Verse 22 says, and the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, he hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of devils has he out devils. Matthew 12, Matthew records the same story, but he has an extra detail. Matthew 12, verse 22 says, Then he was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is this not the son of David? So immediately before the scribes and the Pharisees level this accusation against him, Jesus has just taken people who were the word possessed by people that were possessed by demons, and he's freed them, right? He's allowed these people who the demon's not allowing them to speak, they can speak again, they're, they're not able to see, they can see again, they're crazy, and now they're freed from that. And as this happens, the people that are around them watching them are amazed and they're saying, isn't this the one? Isn't this the son of David? Isn't this the Messiah we've been expecting? And so these crowds are gathering and they're getting to the point that they're ready to crown Jesus the king, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, they're the ones that see a huge problem with this. And so it's at this point that they step in and say, no, 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 it's not the son of David he he's possessed by Satan it's through Satan's power that he's casting out these demons and this accusation it seems it's obviously crazy to us it, it, it's almost silly but during this time from the religious elite this is disastrous this is Jesus getting the point where he's popular and having people think so well of him and understand his mission to an extent? And now it's the religious elite. They're saying, no, it's Satan. He's Satanic. You need to be careful of this one, right? I thought about what this would be like today. And the only modern day example I could get, it'd be like if a modern day politician all of a sudden got wrapped up in some kind of scandal. Nowadays, you have any kind of accusation against somebody, no matter if there's a lot of proof yet, I'm not, I'm certainly not condoning any type of scandals. I'm just saying that sometimes it's, it just takes this little word from someone important that's, that ruins that person. And Jesus is at that point where Pharisees, the scribes, they say this. You could ruin him. He could be done for. So, how does Jesus respond to a disparagement like this? He gives two parables, two analogies, that make the truth of, the, of what he's saying so much more relatable. In verse 23 he says, And he called unto them, and he said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself, Be divided. He cannot stand, but hath an end. So Jesus here summons the scribes. I like that part because it tells us once again that the scribes, they're saying this, they're spreading this rumor, but they will not face Jesus directly. And so Jesus hears about what's going on, or he knows about what's going on, and he decides to confront the issue head on. He says, Hey, fellas, come here. I need to talk to you. They're wondering, Well, what about? Jesus says, remember you said this? Remember you said that it was Satan that was allowing me to do this? I want you to understand that Satan cannot cast out Satan. And if you have a house or a kingdom that's divided against itself, that house and kingdom cannot stand. And in this case, if you have Satan divided against himself, he cannot stand. He will come to an end. This is not what you're saying. What you're saying is lunacy. Here, Jesus reminds us of something that is pretty obvious, but easily forgotten. If a house, or a kingdom, or a church, or any group, or any organization is divided against itself, it cannot stand. There's a reason that the Bible puts so much emphasis on unity. And unity in Christ, unity for truth. But unity is essential because We must be unified over the mission, over our purpose, over our goals. Otherwise, we cannot stand. And here, what Jesus is saying is, Satan and himself share the opposite mission, the opposite purpose, the opposite goals. And so, to say that it's one that's helping the other, it doesn't make any sense. Satan is the thief, right? In John 10.10, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and destroy when we look at what Satan is trying to do in this world, he's trying to wreak havoc on people's lives. He's trying to ruin them and see them spend eternity separ- eternally separated from God. That was his goal from the very beginning. Even with, with Adam and Eve, right? What he did is he, he drove a wedge between Adam and Eve and God. And in driving that wedge between them, he brought death and destruction and sickness and pain and suffering. Everything evil, every abuse, every addiction, it is the original work and plan of Satan. to Destroy this world. That is his kingdom. That is what he has come to build. In 1 Peter 5.8, Peter warns us that our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is active, and this reminds us of that. He's roaming about. The word devour there is to completely and utterly destroy. That is Satan's goal. That is the kingdom he's building. When Mark introduces Jesus, he makes it abundantly clear that Jesus' mission is completely opposed to this. Mark 1.14 says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel or the good news of the kingdom of God, saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, there's a new kingdom here. The kingdom of God is now here. And if you will repent and believe the gospel, you'll be freed from that kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of enslavement. You'll be set free into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of truth, the kingdom of justice, the kingdom of righteousness. Repent and believe the gospel. The healings of Jesus, the restored sight of the blind, the exorcisms of demons, it all points to the goal of the kingdom of God to bring light, bring freedom, bring liberty. To take all that the curse has ruined and reverse it. The set, the wrong, and the evil right. These are flashes, foreshadows of what God's future kingdom will be. Listen, we are not excited enough about the kingdom of God coming. Can you imagine when the curse is reversed what that will be like? We're just so used to the, the bitterness and the darkness and the sadness. And it's all around us and it's in the news all the time and it's everywhere we look and it's it, it infects all of us to the extent that we barely even long for that to be gone. right it's It's like we're in this fog or this this shadow, and we we need to see that light and keep pushing toward it. right There's a day coming where there's no more tears and no more sickness and no more disease and no more anxiety and no more of the, oh no, this person, this happened to them, how did this happen, what are they going to do, right? Every day that passes, we find out more and more bad news. Someday, the bad news will be over. Can you imagine that? Kingdom of God is completely opposed to what Satan is trying to do. And so when they say, it's just Satan, asking out Satan, he just says, no, 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 our kingdoms are not aligned. We are directly opposed to one another. We are in conflict with one another. And what I am come to do is to destroy the work of Satan. To set the captives free. Verse 27. It says, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil the house. Here Jesus helps us understand how it is he is going to destroy Satan. How is he going about this? How is it that he's able to set those who are possessed by demons free? Alistair Begg said, you don't go into a strong man's house and try to put his stuff into a bag. Because if you do, he will end up putting you in a bag. That's good. That's the point Jesus is making. You can't go into a strong man's house and decide that you're just going to take all of his stuff. Because if you do, you're going to be in a lot of trouble when that guy wakes up. So what he's saying is, the first thing you must do, is you must find the strong man. And in this small parable, the strong man is Satan. And his goods are those he has enslaved. All those who don't yet understand and know and believe the gospel. All those still in darkness are those in the strong man's house. In Satan's dominion, his kingdom under the prince of the power of this air. And Jesus has come, and I just love the phraseology here, that he's come from heaven on this mission to break into the strong man's house and bind the strong man and plunder his goods. His goods being the souls of mankind. He's come to rescue us, to set us free. He's come to take the souls that were headed for destruction, that Satan had in his clutches, and free them. Be with him eternally. So that is this parable. He's helping them to understand, listen, we can't be on the same team because we're fighting on opposite sides of the battle. And and this is what I've done in order to be able to tell the demon to leave. In order to to exercise control over the, the demonic realm. I've come and I've bound the strong man. I'm in control. Now now they do my will. They do what I tell them to do. Jesus concludes this rebuttal with a, with a powerful warning to the scribes. Here, he is answering the question about his power and authority. And it's interesting because the scribes, that's what they're attacking, isn't it? What they're saying is, his power, his authority, it comes from Satan. So he begins, verily... I say unto you, what he's saying there is truly, or or, or, this this is a true saying, and he's saying, I'm saying it. In other words, the truth and the authority are in me. Verily I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness but is in danger of eternal damnation. As they said, he hath an unclean spirit. All sins, even blasphemy, is forgivable. That's good news. All sins are forgivable. Blasphemy is forgivable. But here we find this text that is often called the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Not sin, is the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Blasphemy is attributing the works of God to another or claiming the power or name of God falsely. So if, I, if I'm if i on the outside and I look at someone else and I attribute the works of God to them falsely, then I'm committing blasphemy. If I claim I have the authority of God or the, or the power of God and I don't, then I'm committing blasphemy. One commentator helpfully put it this way. He said, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an attitude, not an isolated act or utterance. Not something that you just do one time and it's done. You said the wrong words and so you're, you're destined for hell for eternity. It's an attitude of defiant hostility toward God that rejects his saving power toward man expressed in the Spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. And, and it's here that an understanding of the Trinity and an understanding of God's work and the Spirit's work in the life of Jesus and in the work of Christ is so important. Because you must understand that if we're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that means we're going we're to say that the Spirit is doing something that the Spirit's not or that the Spirit has done something the Spirit hasn't done. And the Spirit's job in the, in, in the world is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and, and to show them the Savior that has died for them. That's what the Spirit does, right? The Spirit, even among the church, is here to empower the church's witness to go out to the world to bring the gospel of salvation of Jesus to the lost and dying world. So the Spirit is very involved in a person's salvation. The Spirit shows them that they need salvation. They shows them what justice really is. They convict them of sin then they show them Christ. And if you're going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're rejecting all of that. You're rejecting what the Spirit is telling you about your sin and about Jesus Christ. And so here, Kent Hughes says, the blasphemy of the Spirit is the ongoing, continual rejection of the witness of the Spirit to the divinity and the Saviorhood of Christ. And as the scribes look at Jesus, and they attribute the Spirit's work to Satan, they're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because What they're doing is they're saying that the Spirit, that, the Spirit is, that Satan is responsible for something that the Spirit is doing. And that's blasphemy. And so, notice here that Jesus doesn't actually outright say they've committed the blasphemy of the Spirit. What he says is, they said he has an unclean spirit. And so it seems like he's warning them, and he's giving them these parables to help them understand that they need to repent and change that attitude. One of the terrifying things about this, though, because this is a really, I think, misunderstood topic. I think it's talked about a lot. I think that these verses really um, are so often misunderstood. So. What I don't think these verses teach is that you can commit one act of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and then from that point on you are lost for eternity. I don't think that's what this is teaching. I think that this is their attitude that is defiantly against God and God's work and what the Spirit has done in the person and work of Christ. But it does remind us that it's possible for a person to become so callous to the gospel That so many times the Spirit says, Jesus. That that Jesus is the way. That you are a sinner. That you need Christ. And so many times we can say no to that and close ourselves off to that. That eventually we are committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But the the thing is, no person that is committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit knows it. You can't know it. Isn't that kind of weird? That would mean that you could be convicted. And as soon as you think you might be committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is convicting you, and so you're safe, essentially, as long as you respond the right way. But it does mean if you keep not responding to the Spirit's work in your life, and you keep committing, you keep saying what the Spirit is doing is just your mind, or Satan, or whatever else, that that, that's not the Spirit's work in your life, but eventually, the Spirit's work is done. Closed off. Right? You've got that attitude. And so we must be careful not to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But if you are, too late. Okay. Here we have this ongoing um, concern that Jesus has for the scribes and the Pharisees, and I love that he is still trying to teach them truth, still trying to help them out. <laughs> I can unplug that speaker. What? All right. wish I could fit that into an analogy somehow, but I can't. All right. So there's our text. Mark is getting here, I think, at one main point. And this is his same point that he's been making throughout the whole book. He's teaching us something that we must know about who Christ is and what he's done. Um, but there is also a lesson that I think we learn that he wasn't necessarily intending for his original audience. So there's something there. And I also think that there's a bit of wisdom that Jesus gives that is very helpful for us. So I want to give you those first two things, the bit of wisdom and the thing that that we learned that the original audience maybe didn't learn. And then I want to get to the main point. Okay. So here is the lesson that I think that we can learn that his originally, original audience didn't really need to learn. And that is the reality of spiritual warfare. Reality of spiritual warfare. In our society, this story seems absurd. Can you imagine in North America today, Jesus casting out demons, telling demons to leave a person's body, and having those people receive their sight back, or, or be able to speak, or receive their mind back. Can you imagine that happening? And can you imagine... The greatest lawyers of the day getting together, and the case that they make against Jesus who is casting out demons is that he's casting out demons because Satan is giving him power to do it. The greatest lawyers of the day, they're saying it's Satan's fault. It wouldn't happen. Nothing like that happens today because nobody believes in demons. Nobody believes in spiritual warfare. We, We kind of push that off to a side as some ancient belief, ancient understanding, but The lesson that Mark didn't need to teach them, because they all believed it, there was no question, he wasn't wasn't introducing them to the spiritual realm, they just understood it, um, is that demons are real. That, That there really is something there, that there really is a warfare going on. That Satan is really at work. And that his kingdom is colliding with the kingdom of God. And that we, whether we know it or not, are involved in this warfare. We might be involved in the sense that we're told to pick up our gun and pick up our sword and go fight, and we're not. That's still being involved. Right? You're still sitting on the bench when you should be out there. The reality is, we are in a warfare. That you have been called. If you're a believer in Christ, you've been called to be a soldier. The kids' verse this past week in kids' club was Second Timothy two two four. No man that wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may. Please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. A soldier in the army of God. Don't get so obsessed with this life, with temporal things, that you miss the calling of God and what he wants you to do with it. You have one life to live. So let's fight well. Ephesians 6.12, We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a terrifying verse. And that's a reality we must be reminded of. Satan is real. Demons are real. And we are involved in a battle. This battle, we are at war, and someday we will see with our own eyes that the unseen spiritual forces are more real and more eternal than the present-day physical world. Strange thought. I wrote it down, I was like, can you imagine one day those unseen spiritual realities being more real, more obvious, more eternal than this stuff that we see and touch and know so well? second thing we find in this little jewel in this text is the wisdom of Christ, and that is simply that divided kingdoms and divided houses do not stand. I spent a bit of time on this already, so I won't go over it again, but I tell you something? Unity in our households, unity in our churches, unity as believers in Christ is absolutely essential. And the only way that happens in our houses and in our church is if we all get on board for the same purpose. We're all searching for the same goal. The problem with churches happens when our goals change. The goal has to be the glory of God, and the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel and, and seeing People come to know Christ and then be discipled in Christ. And if our church sticks to that and doesn't get sidetracked with so many things that Satan would love to distract us with, man, we'll be unified and do so much for the kingdom of God. And if we get distracted, then we're in trouble. We're divided, we will not stand. Right? We'll come to an end, what Jesus said. And that's true in our church, that's true in our houses. Uh, I think it'd be a good idea for families, think more about the spiritual warfare that they're all involved in. I think it would be great to have more conversations to talk about how is our family what is God calling our family to do? How are we fulfilling God's purpose in our family? How are you, each of us as individuals helping each other grow in Christ? That would bring a lot of unity to a family. And Instead, we prioritize everything else in front of God's will or God's plan. and We really talk a lot about how school is going and how sports are going and how this is going and how that's going and how job is going and all those things. And how often is a conversation about how's your walk with God going? Are you growing? Is there something I can help you with? Something I can pray for you about? You know, unified over the right thing as a family. It's just a little bit of wisdom I think Jesus gives us here that we should apply. The important thing we need to see in this text is the possible identities of Christ. Here we have three identities that are presented by three different people in our story. It's C.S. Lewis that is so famous for his uh, book, quote to quote, um, about Jesus and whether Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we mustn't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He didn't intend to. I just love it. I feel like we should stop there. right? He is a liar, like the scribes said. That, that he is empowered by Satan, and that this is the work of Satan on earth. That's one option, and it's an option you should consider. He's, I mean, if, if Jesus didn't said the things he said, and he's not really the Lord, his power had to come from somewhere. So maybe the scribes were on to something, maybe. Right? You need to think about it, because you need to make a decision. He's a, a liar, a demon, or he's crazy. Just like his family thought. That he's out of his mind. That he needed somebody to come and grab him and take him out of the situation and say, hey, you can't be a cult leader anymore because none of these things are true. Right? the lunatic. But if this book is true and the things that Jesus said are true, then he is the Lord. And we have to come to grips with one of those identities. Jesus doesn't just let us live our lives and say, no big deal, I don't care. Ultimately, you make your choice. He claims to be Lord. Do you accept that claim? He claims that he's the son of God to come and die for your sin. Do you believe he's your savior, that you accepted him as your savior? or? Have you just kind of decided to wait that one out? You've got to decide. Liar, lunatic or lord. I understand that in this crowd most of us have come to grips with this question. I get it, right? But do we understand that, that this really is the question posing all of our neighbors and all of our friends and all of our loved ones and and all of our coworkers and all the people we go to school with and everybody around us they're supposed to answer this question and they're avoiding it. Here Jesus is He's either crazy, or he's terribly evil, or he is the Lord. But you got to make a decision. Here we have the kingdom of God at war with the kingdom of Satan. Good news is we know which kingdom wins. We know the end of the story. Praise the Lord for that. But knowing the end of the story should not should not give us the license to sit back and do nothing. It should encourage us to say, you know what? I'm on the winning team and I've been called to be a soldier. Let's get out and face the spiritual realities. Let's get out to face the facts that people are determining who Jesus is every single day, or, or maybe not determining, and maybe it's our job to present them with that decision. Let's stop just sitting back. Let's get out there and fight. Be a soldier. And bring this gospel, the good news of salvation, that the kingdom of God has come. And if we will believe and repent, save, bring that truth to the people around us. In 1 Kings 18.21, pastor preached a few months back. And just that statement that Elijah makes and how he seems so frustrated as he makes it, it always gets me. He says, Elijah came to the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long will you just sit on the fence? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people answered him not a word. Now this is a great question for an unbeliever. Jesus is the Savior. Trust him. Don't have some kind of vague belief in, in God, vague belief in a historical Jesus, Determine if he is a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. But I think this question is also helpful for those of us who know Christ, just in the fact that as we think about Jesus and we think about these spiritual realities and we think about here Jesus giving his life so much so that his family was concerned that he was crazy because he wasn't even eating, wasn't even able to eat because he was so busy ministering and there's so many. people. If, if that's the Jesus we're called to follow. Maybe we need to look back at this question and say, how long will I halt between the two worlds? Am I living for the kingdom of this world? Am I living for the kingdom of God? Let's pray.